come as far as verse 20. I'm going to back up to verse 12. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And verse 12, it says, The next day after, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard this. Then the next day, in verse 20, he goes in and cleanses the temple that day. And then the next day, in verse 20, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So as they come back the next day, this fig tree has withered. Jesus uh, curses it when they pass by the previous day, and now they see the tree dried up from the roots. It has withered away, and it is desiccated. Um, maybe they look around for the other tree. Where's that one You know that we saw yesterday? This is the only miracle in which Jesus cursed rather than blessed by his power. It's a powerful statement that coincides with his teachings of a coming judgment to Israel. He prefers blessing and not cursing. And so Peter notices it. The others as well, they're surprised. I don't know why at this point that they're surprised, but they are to see the fig tree so quickly dried up and dead. Jesus speaks and his words come to pass. His words have power. It is a powerful real life illustration of the coming judgment. And then Jesus tells us why his words have such power and how their own prayers and words may also have the same power. When he tells them in verse 22, have faith in God. For I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. So Jesus encourages them in believing prayer. Have faith in God. Jesus says this is the key to what has happened to the fig tree. Because Jesus placed his faith in the Father. Yes, he is God come in the flesh. He always does those things that please the Father. He does what he sees the Father doing. He speaks the words that the Father gives him to speak. He's come to do the Father's will, not his own will. This is why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yet he placed his faith in the Father, and when he spoke, his words had the power to impact the world. So that what he said happened, 
what he said came to pass. Whether it was healing, miraculous works, power over nature, whatever it was. This short passage from verses 22 to 24 has been much abused by certain Bible teachers. Sometimes we spend so much time countering false teachings about what Jesus says here that we don't take to heart what he is saying. The great encouragement that he is seeking to instill in his followers in regard to faith in God. He's telling them about the great power that there is in faith in God and walking according to that faith. This passage has been and is misinterpreted by some, particularly in the word faith or word of faith movement. The idea is that your words, and the emphasis is upon what you speak and the power of your words to bring about your desired results. The idea is that your words will bring about what you have spoken. This is known of as positive confession, positive affirmation, positive thinking, possibility thinking. You may have heard all those phrases and, and others. Uh, the emphasis, the words of Jesus, the, hmm, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> the Lord. You know, I went through these notes. The emphasis of the words of Jesus about what you say and not doubting that what you say shall come to pass. And the idea is you will have whatever you say. Their emphasis is upon this speaking, the word that is said. The statement of Jesus is absolutely true, just as everything he says is absolutely true. But the act of saying is not independent of the faith in God. Or the fact that this is said within the context of praying. What is said is the end point of some things that have gone before. Someone in the Word Faith Movement wrote a book based around this passage. And the book is titled, Have Faith in Your Faith. Not exactly what Jesus is saying. Is your faith or the God in whom you place your faith is what gets results, what gets answers? If you're saved by faith in your ability to have faith, how insecure would that be? You're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. That's security. He's the object of your faith, not the fact that you can believe. In faith, you don't look to your faith, but you look to Jesus. Some teach that God has faith in his own words, and this is why he has power. They twist some scriptures to come to this conclusion. An example is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, where we're told, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We read this according to the natural reading and say it's by faith that we understand this. Just as... Nina was sharing about the impossibility of evolution. You know, as we see the creation around us, by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. There are some people that don't have that faith, or they uh, deny that faith because there's that knowledge placed within them. So we'd say, by faith we understand. Well, they would read this and they would say, we understand that by faith the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And so the reason why we have a creation is because God exercised faith 
in what he said. And he brought about that which we see and that which we experience. They sometimes interpret Jesus' words here as saying, have the faith of God rather than have faith in God. If you have the same kind of faith God has, they say, you can do what God does. Ridiculous. God does what God does because he's the only true God. Creator of heaven and earth, he does not operate by faith. He doesn't need to. Jesus did so as a man walking in dependence upon his father while on the earth. And he uses himself here as our ultimate example of having faith in God. He explains why the fig tree has withered. By faith he spoke a curse and what he said came to pass. Jesus could have changed the topography of the earth with a word. But it was words that he was getting from his father. Having faith in God, having faith in the Father, speaking forth his words. He, he told us, I, didn't, you know, I don't come giving you my message. I'm giving you the words that the Father's taught me to speak. If God operates on the basis of faith, then we cannot be secure in him continuing to be our rock, our strength, and our salvation. What if his faith falters? In other words, ridiculous. Faith is required of men. It is believing God, believing what God has said and done. Uh, Hebrews 11.6, which we read often. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Man must have faith in God. God does not need faith in himself. And this is essentially what these false teachers imply. Some have placed the emphasis totally upon what you say. One wrote a book titled The Tongue, A Creative Force. The idea behind many of these teachings is that you can create your own reality through the power of your faith, your words, or your confessions. And may may God have pity upon you if you say something less than positive. This is occultic teachings, not... Biblical teachings, not the teachings of the gospel. By the way, God does not use the words positive and negative in his word. Dave Hunt was very good at pointing out examples that do not fit the positive negative mindset. One example is uh, when Jesus tells them, the son of man's going up to Jerusalem, he's going to be cruci- uh, betrayed, crucified, you know, he's going to be killed. That's not very positive. That's kind of negative. He does say he's going to rise the third day. They didn't hear that part. But, uh, Peter replies to him, says, Not so, Lord. This will never happen to you. Very positive. But which one was God's will? Dave shares one time about a, a negative confession he made when he was seeking to smuggle some Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain in Russia. And he was like, I just knew that we were going to get found out. We were going to get caught, you know. And, of course, the Lord just took them through, and they were able to distribute the Bibles. He said, uh, here's God blessing me on the basis of this negative confession, you know. God is good. He's merciful. He's gracious. Would Jesus have not been crucified if he had not made such a negative confession? But the cross was God's will. And this is a factor that is not considered by many who place the emphasis on my words and what I speak. 
What if I speak and believe that something is going to come to pass or I'm going to receive something that is not God's will? Will I receive it if I just believe hard enough? I haven't heard that much lately promoting the doctrine of positive confession, but I'm sure it's still out there, still being taught. I've been watching the right television programs to, to see it, I guess. The teaching of positive confession is naturally self-defeating because it does not result in what is promised. People are confessing all sorts of things positively and it's, it's not happening. Um, there used to be a thing that may still be out there where you would pray over a city and you would bind all the demons in that city and of course God was going to bring revival through this activity but the city continued to get worse. It didn't get better. What do we do with our tongues? What we do with our tongues and words is important, but it's not for that reason. Our communication is to be spirit-led and edifying to one another. We do not have the creative power of God in our mouths unless God gives us the very words that we're going to speak. There are all sorts of twisting of scriptures to try and support their teachings, but none of it is valid. These ideas are from the occult, not from Judaism or from Christianity. Uh, Wearsby says, nor should we interpret Mark 11:24 to mean if I pray hard enough and really believe God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what you ask. That kind of faith is not faith in God. Rather, it is nothing but faith in faith or faith in feelings. Um, we read a while back, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, where Paul writes, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Interestingly, Jesus never moved any mountains. He could have. That was the Father's will, if you wanted to. You could move a mountain. And, of course, we have other types of mountains in our lives that were to have faith in God that they might be removed or moved. Of a spiritual mountain. Well, we know that there are conditions in addition to faith for answered prayer. God's will is one of those conditions. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John writes, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what, that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So uh, he hears us in a positive sense as responding and fulfilling that request for us. And, and the condition is we ask according to if we know something's according to his will, we can ask and we can know absolutely that that is going to take place. Right motives are important in prayer. Uh, not my will, but his will be done. And we saw this in James Four or three not long ago, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then forgiving others, which we see in our context here, it's important to have a clear conscience before God and before man. Jesus later tells them to ask anything of the Father in his name that is based on his authority. So there's that condition and that, that one kind of sums up everything about having faith in God and believing prayer. 
He says in John 16, 24 to his apostles, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He speaks of asking in his name a number of times in the final hours before his crucifixion, encouraging his apostles in prayer. What we might think of as conditions for answered prayer are actually inherent in this command, have faith in God. All these things, God's will, heart motives, in his name, are all included in having faith in God for answered prayer. And by extension, speaking words with power to move mountains. So they are explanatory of what having faith in God means. They give us helpful guidance in our prayer life. Jesus doesn't mention any of these conditions here or these qualifications He does mention the need of forgiving others in verses 25 and 26, but his main purpose in his words prior to this seems to be to encourage them to pray and believe God for what they pray for. Sometimes it is if we know too much, at least myself. We know the qualifiers and we become hesitant to even ask, and the enemy brings his condemnations to inhibit us from asking. We don't know if this request is the will of God, and what do I know of the purity of my motives sometimes? Will God even hear my prayer? And the enemy likes nothing better than a believer who is discouraged and not praying. We can begin to create doubt in our own minds. And doubt is destructive of receiving from God in prayer. As James says in James chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. Uh, when he talks about asking God for wisdom and he'll give it. And then he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Just reading that makes me doubt. Yes, I'm unstable in all my ways. How can I receive anything from God? But Jesus cuts through all of that here. He just says, have faith in God. Don't doubt. Believe that you receive your request. Believe God and don't overanalyze things. If you ask amiss, he's not going to fulfill your request, but he's not going to condemn you. He's able to redirect our hearts and our requests to bring them into line with his heart and with his will. And we also have his Holy Spirit to intercede for us when we do not know how to pray as we ought. And the part about saying to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, is based upon answered prayer, not independent of it. It's not the creative power of my tongue, but the power of God through prayer. When I know that something I've been praying about is God's will, then I can confidently speak in such a way that it is in sync with God's will. This statement of saying is not merely in the context of spoken words, but also in the context of prayer. Prayer is essential to this kind of faith in God and is the source of any words that are spoken with power. We can get ourselves all twisted up in our own thoughts and doubts. At least I certainly can. But the bottom line is that God has only our good in mind and he has proven that. And he wants us to let him know what we desire. That should make our prayer life easy and simple. We're speaking to a loving father who is good and wants our good. We may not always know God's perfect will, but we know what we want of God, 
what our request is, and he bids us ask. He wants us to bring everything before him and let him sort it out if need be. The most important thing about praying is to pray, to ask, to keep asking. The Lord can work with that. He can refine our requests, so we must keep asking. Uh, A couple times as I was reading this week, I ran across an old Puritan saying. They would say, pray until you pray. And the idea was that, well, I'll read something that explains it here better, but the idea is that when we come to God in prayer, we come before Him. Many times there are a lot of distractions going on. And we have to pray until we're actually praying, until we actually uh, know that we're having communion, fellowship with Him. Uh, someone explained it this way. It does not simply mean that persistence should mark much of our praying, though admittedly that is a point the Scriptures repeatedly make. What the Puritans meant is that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will, such, advi- such advice is not to become an excuse for new legalism. There are startling examples of short, rapid prayers in the Bible, such as Nehemiah 2.4, which says, uh, Nehemiah's got a, he's down in the mouth about Jerusalem. And the king says to him in Nehemiah 2.4, what do you request? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I mean, there wasn't a lot of time to take to see the Lord. So he's, right then he's praying about what should I ask for, Lord? So there are plenty of examples of, you know, short, quick prayers that are effective. You know, there's that argument about what posture in prayer is the most effective, whether it should be on your knees or flat on your face on the, or looking up. You know, many times people looked up and one guy's saying, well, I fell, into, I fell into a well head first and I don't think I ever prayed more effectively in my life. You know? <laughs> I don't recommend that as posture for prayer. Uh, they go on to say, but in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us, our praying are like nasty little boys who ring the front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. So we, do we give time, God, to speak to us and respond? Now, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes and says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Your request. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So he wants us to bring everything to him. The Lord would have us bring it all. There's nothing too large, nothing too small. He wants it all. And so we're told by Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We're to have this continual communication, fellowship with the Lord. So we bring all things to God in prayer. And in this communion, he is able to work within us and begin to align our will with his will. For us to will and to do according to his good pleasure, as we're told in Philippians 2.13. So prayer is as much about us being in God's presence in communication with him as it is about getting things done. Uh, 
in light of what Jesus says here, don't be afraid to ask big things of God and let him decide the answer. He is certainly not limited in what he can do. As we read in Ephesians 3.20, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Don't be afraid to request outlandish things in Jesus' name. How will we know unless we ask in faith? So come to him in prayer and ask him for those things you desire to see happen. There are certain things that we can have total confidence in receiving from God because he's told us ahead of time that that is his will. For example, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a promise of God. And so we can come before God knowing that if we're asking for mercy and grace in a time of need, that he's going to positively answer that prayer. Or Romans 8, 31 and 32. Uh, what then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He'll give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's already given them, actually. And so we, if we know his will, we, got, we have a guaranteed positive answer. Uh, Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You need the Holy Spirit? Everybody needs the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit in their life. Will God give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? He says he will. That's a promise. So, praying according to the will of God and knowing that you shall receive. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This God commands. He com- you know, it's not a request. It's a command to be filled with the Spirit. And if God commands something, he will do it if we will let him. It's a guaranteed thing. and It doesn't matter what the command of God is. We know that he's going to be willing to carry that out. Uh, Philippians 4, 7, as we read about uh, praying about everything, there's a promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if you're bringing everything to God in prayer, then this is a guaranteed result that the peace of God will that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And then, of course, we see Second uh, Peter 3, 9. The Lord's not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires for everyone to come. First Timothy 2, 4. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, um, we cannot go amiss in praying for the lost. And bringing them before God. That's, we know that's God's will to draw them to himself. That they might be saved. And so uh, that's something we can always pray in confidence. That the Lord will answer. I think it was George Mueller who prayed some 40 years for a certain list of people. Friends that he knew that were not believers. And they, they all got saved before he passed away. Except one. And that guy got saved at George's funeral. So we want to continue to lift up 
those that we know, that we love, that are lost, that need the Lord. As we read in John 16, 24, he says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And in Romans 8, 26, 27, which I alluded to, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So as we pray in the Spirit, if you have a gift of tongues as a prayer language, or if you moan and groan before the Lord, uh, the Spirit can make intercession and perfect request before the Lord. And sometimes things we wouldn't ask for that we need, but uh, I don't want that, you know. Uh, and so the Spirit will intercede and ask for what we need. So, uh, pray and believe, pray and believe, pray and believe. As you come across clear promises in God's Word, turn them into prayers. For you know that God will delight in giving you what you ask. If He promises or if He commands, you can have full confidence in God's will for your request. And as John has written, we read previously, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask according to his will, anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. In verse 25, Jesus then says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So, an important aspect of this prayer that he's talking about is that we forgive those who have offended us. The Lord's quite serious about us forgiving others who offend us or even sin against us. The idea that is if God, if God has forgiven us so much, all our trespasses, everything that we have done or will do to offend the holiness of God, then we must be willing to forgive that which much, must be much less than we have been forgiven. The greatest illustration of Jesus concerning this is found in Matthew 18, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Actually, it might be a, a real guy. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus had been just been speaking earlier, not far earlier, about if your brother sins against you, you know, go to him alone then take two from the church. And so he's talking about forgiving sin. And Peter says, how often? Seven times? And Jesus says to him, I don't... I." Do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Mm-hmm. And I know Paul counts. He keeps track. Yeah. He's got a list. Yeah. Four hundred and eighty-seven times you've offended me. Only yeah. three more times I have to forgive. <laughs> he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Now that's an impossible sum. I mean, a billion, well, it's like a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. Um, it'd be like being indebted to Elon Musk for 
for a billion dollars. And you think, well, how did he allow me to get in this situation? <laughs> but this is the this is the story. But he was not able to pay his master commanded he be sold. And it, the discrepancy in the amounts is really significant. I mean, that's true uh, when we apply this to ourselves and God and, and the debt that we owe and the debt that others might owe us. So when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Not going to get a whole lot to cover that billion dollars. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. You know, you can take a quarter out of my pay each week. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So that's about a, that's a significant amount. It's like a third of a year's wages, right? And so he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, <laughs> saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went through him into prison till he should pay the debt. Unforgiveness. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Has God had pity on you? Merciful, gracious, forgiving you all your trespasses. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. His trespasses. So the standard is as God has forgiven us. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You can judge and determine Christ's level of forgiveness toward you as to how are you willing to forgive. Ephesians 4.30-32, through 32, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that's our standard. It's similar to the command to love one another as Jesus loves us. We must also forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Now forgiveness can be very difficult. There's no question about that, at least for us. There was a husband who had asked his wife to forgive him for certain things in which he had offended her and she said she forgave him, but she kept bringing up his offenses from time to time. He was upset about this and said to her, finally, you told me you had forgiven and forgotten. And she replied, I have forgiven and forgotten, but I don't want you to forget that I've forgiven and forgotten. (laughs) Ah, Yes, our forgiveness must not be qualified. God's forgiveness toward us is not qualified, but freely and completely bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. 
Some things are incredibly difficult to forgive. Our faith in God may be more necessary in that than faith to move mountains. Uh, Some offenses are mountainous. Years ago, there was a couple in the body who uh, they were out riding their bicycle, uh, bicycles, and their infant daughter was in a seat behind them. Drunk driver coming down the road ran over them and drugged their child hundreds of feet before they stopped. Of course, the, the child died, you know. It's not a time to bring up the requirement to forgive. Oh, you really have to forgive that guy. You know, there has to be a time for grief, anger, and sorrow to run its course. You know, the Lord understands that severeness of uh, offense. Uh, there was an, a, a, some have forgiven these great offenses very quickly. That's not always a requirement you know we, we shouldn't we should comfort and uh, uh, seek to build up that person not condemn them because they're bitter toward this person or that person give God time to work there was another man who was a missionary to Africa he was a friend of Charles Hedges our previous pastor and does anybody remember this man's name he was a Southern Baptist from here in Evansville and I can't I can't recall his name, but he and his family were in Africa as missionaries. And they took in a professing Christian man who needed help. And one day when this fellow was off on doing mission work, this guy uh, murdered his wife and his son and took their money. And um, this man went to the jail where the man had been remanded and just shortly after the crime and he told the man that he forgave him but he said you need to confess get right with the Lord that is grace at an unexpected time another instance was the experience of Corey Tenboom. she was speaking in a church after being released from Robinsburg concentration camp and the, after the service a man came up to her you may have read this or heard her speaking about it And she recognized him as being a man responsible for the deaths of her family members, some of her family members. He was a guard in the camp. Uh, It was in a church in Munich, she says, that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving among the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. And I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture because, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confessed our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. She doesn't say it here, but I remember other times she said he puts up a sign, no fishing allowed. (laughs) (laughs) She says the solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence, collected their wraps, 
in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights. She's having a flashback. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Robinsbrook concentration camp where we were sent, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Robinsbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Freudlein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, it could not. So, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I do that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. No matter what the physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth 
seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it is that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. It is a little different than forgiving someone who keeps parking in your parking space or eating food you left in the fridge at work. But sometimes the lesser offenses can be as difficult to forgive as the great offenses. Oh, how we need the grace of God to forgive and the power of His Spirit to to leave others' sins at the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness. Verse 26. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Verse 26 is not found in today's preferred liberal manuscripts. But it's found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 15. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it is scripture. It's God's word. We can trust it completely. We should not be so quick to correct God's word that he has preserved for us for millennia. Um, This is from George Rivka. Some of you have talked about him before. Uh, his commentary on this verse, he, he's talking about a word for that he was writing about in his devotional this day. And he said, this word is not Hebrew or Greek, it's Inuit. The word is, I'll have to go to the pronunciation guide here. The word is Isumaji Georgian Nai Nir Mik. Or Mik. It's, it's one long word. When missionaries first shared the gospel with the Inuit tribes in Alaska, <laughs> They couldn't find any word in the Inuit language for forgiveness. So they took a number of Inuit words and joined them to form a new word, which is Isu Maji Junai Nir Mit. And it became the Inuit word for forgiveness. The individual words mean not being able to think about it anymore. Too often we remember the hurt, replaying it over and over again in our minds. Forgiveness is not something we do just once. It is something we must reaffirm every day. Whenever a hurtful memory comes up, remember the word. <laughs> like I would be able to. But you can remember that it means I can't think about it anymore. It's in God's hands. God's hands. Rather than replay the hurt you may have acquired, replay God's mercy, his grace, his love for us and them when he freely gave his life. That will enable us to forget it and move forward. That's George. So if you struggle to forgive, God is not going to write you off. He wants us to be forgiving because that's a major part of his character. And we're to be like him in this world. If you don't forgive for a time in a certain situation, you're not going to be kicked out of the body. 
If you're saved, you will not become lost. In Jesus, you are secure. But harboring unforgiveness will disrupt your fellowship with the Lord. And it will be disrupted until you deal with that issue. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. And we thank you for the power of forgiveness, Lord, that it has the power to heal and to bring uh, reconciliation. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven us that great debt that we have before you. just insurmountable for us, Lord. Completely overwhelming as if we owed that billion dollars. But you forgive you forgave us all in Christ Jesus and, and all of our iniquity was laid upon him, upon his shoulders, and he took it willingly and um, he was raised from the dead, Lord, so that we could be reconciled with you, justified in your sight. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness we have, and we pray, Lord, for your spirit that we be filled with your spirit. We know that's a prayer according to your will. And by your spirit that we would have that same heart of forgiveness toward those who offend us. If there are things we've been harboring that are in our hearts this morning, Lord, uh, we pray that you would take them from us. Give us willingness to turn them over to you. To not be able to think about it anymore. um, And bring healing in those relationships and if those People who have offended us, who have been so uh, terrible and horrible to us as we much more have been to you. Uh, Then we pray, Lord, that you would draw them, that you would forgive them. They might seek after you, that they might be found of you, Lord, brought into your kingdom. And know that their sins are cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Thank you, Lord. We bless you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.